Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Today we're going to talk about flooding, we're going to talk about habituation, we're going to talk about desensitization, these kind of big buzzwords. And the reason we are is because Janine Collins over in Patreon wrote in and said, where does habituation stop and flooding begin? And I would like to dive into that question. So you know where I like to begin, I like to begin with definitions. So let's define these three terms. Janine did not mention the word desensitization, but it is important for us to talk about here. So. Janine's question being, what, where does habituation stop and flooding begin? Well, I'll start by defining those terms. So habituation is defined as just an overall diminished response or perception of a stimulus. So my foot is broken um, and I'm wearing a cast and I have habituated to that cast. I don't remember that it's on all the time. I don't remember that it's on necessarily until I move my foot and it becomes kind of um, more apparent. But in the first few days that I was wearing it, I was hyper aware of it all the time. So habituation has taken place in regards to the cast. Habituation is kind of is a noun and it is the goal of these therapies that we're going to talk about. So it's it's also achieved, you know, not only by the therapies we're going to go into, but it can be achieved just by this kind of casual or disorganized exposure of something like the heater kicks on in your house, it starts kicking on more often, it kicks on, you know, a couple of times a day and over the course of a week or so the dog stops responding to the fact that the heater's kicking on, habituation has taken place then. But people sometimes refer to habituation as a procedure. And if they're referring to it as a procedure, they're probably talking about it in this casual sense. So just kind of casual exposure to a thing, a stimulus that you'd like your learner to feel less about or respond less to. Flooding is a form of exposure therapy in which the learner is exposed to their trigger. So the thing we're talking about, the thing they have a response to, usually something they're afraid of at full intensity until that fear response or whatever the response is calms down or diminishes. So essentially your response to the thing wears out because you're being exposed to the thing at your most intense feelings of the thing for long enough that your nervous system basically cannot keep sustaining that response. And then in the therapy, we would remove that trigger when the response calmed down. So I've told the story in the podcast before, but it was a long time ago. So I'm going to tell it again. And certain people are not going to be happy with me. So trigger warning, I'm going to talk about bees where I kind of got stuck amongst a lot of honeybees on a trail once. So I was walking on the trail and there were a lot of flowers and it was springtime and then there were more flowers. And then I started to hear the kind of low hum of the buzzing everywhere. And I realized that I was literally surrounded by wildflowers. Like they were touching me. I couldn't not be touching flowers. And also that there were bees all over the flowers. And 
I started to panic um, because I am scared of bees. And I really had no choice but to turn around and walk out. So to walk back down the trail through the flowers. And it took me so long to get back out that I had calmed down by the time I got out. And I call that a flooding kind of session because my response to honeybees in particular is still diminished to this day from that experience. And I'm going to go into dog examples as well. But what's important to know is that flooding happens at a high intensity exposure rate. So flooding is what happens when you are exposed to something at such an intensity level that you are having that panic response, that big response that you're going to have to the thing. And habituation can occur as a result of that flooding. Of course, flooding, there's a huge risk of fallout with flooding. Of course, the risk would be sensitizing the learner to the thing. Of course, you could also risk really diminishing trust, damaging the relationship between the learner and the teacher. Also, it just sucks, like straight up not a good time to be exposed to your thing that you're upset about for, you know, at a high intensity rate for a long time. So we tend to avoid it as as trainers who are trying to adhere by the humane hierarchy or follow a Lima framework, we try to avoid it, but it can achieve habituation for us. When folks talk about habituation as a procedure, they tend not to be talking about throwing the dog into the snake pit. And, you know, in my metaphor, dogs are afraid of snakes and letting them out when they calm down. Desensitization or systematic desensitization is a procedure that is also a form of exposure therapy like flooding in which the learner is exposed to the thing they're afraid of or or that they don't like or that they have a big reaction to gradually and progressively. So you start at the lowest possible response. So you do start where the learner perceives the thing and you build up to exposing them to more and more intense exposures of the, to the trigger so I didn't say that well but essentially if we go back to my bees example this would be more like okay there are some honeybees on some flowers 10 feet away and you notice them you perceive I notice them I perceive them but I am not afraid and so then we move the flowers five feet away. And now I'm perhaps a little bit more afraid, but I'm still okay. And we're gonna stay at that level until I'm not afraid of them. And then you might put them right next to me on the table right next to me where I'm sitting. And you're gonna leave them there until I feel okay about that. And so on and so forth. And it takes a lot longer and it requires a lot of thought. And it alone is probably not a procedure that I would use for honeybee therapy. But habituation can, again, occur due to that systematic desensitization. And so why Janine asked the question, where does habituation stop and flooding begin, is probably because we see sometimes in dog training folks saying that they are facilitating habituation when maybe we are looking at it and thinking, eh, are you or are you flooding that learner? So um, a lot of puppy socialization examples come to mind for me here. If I take my puppy to a dog show and just start marching them around and they are extremely overwhelmed by the entire thing, are 
they habituating or are they being flooded? And the answer could be both. They could be flooded if this is a high intensity exposure and they are upset and I'm going to keep them there until they're no longer upset and then I'll remove them. Then we're talking about flooding. Or it might just be that kind of casual attempt to help them habituate that we that we do so frequently. And probably the smarter route for us to go is to say, okay, you're comfortable in a crate, so I'm going to crate you at the dog show and I'm going to watch you and make sure that you're eating and you're drinking and you're looking around and you feel safe. And if that's true, then I'm going to bring you out of the crate and let you look around from there. And if that's true, we might try to walk around. So desensitization might look a little bit more like that. Whereas I've seen people um, perform what I would call flooding on puppies in dog shows sometimes where they just hand the puppy to somebody at the dog show and say go ahead and take them in the ring and now the puppy's exposed to the judge and the ring and all the things and maybe he stopped eating and he's very afraid but by the time you know his ring time is over he has calmed down he has gone back to eating and now we remove him from the ring you know we're probably that's probably looking a little bit more like flooding but in general it has to do with the intensity of exposure the difference between the systematic desensitization and flooding and both of them can achieve habituation and I hope Janine that that answers your question and in general I think the take home here is that taking a systematic approach where we expose somebody gradually to the thing that they're worried about is kinder and can be as effective and is probably what we want to pair with kind of our other therapies to help dogs to get through whatever it is that we're talking about. And now we're going to dive into some other Patreon questions. The first one comes from Anna, who writes, I have recently adopted a three-year-old female intact Australian Shepherd from a breeder. She has only been with me two and a half months, so early days. She has settled in well, but struggles with people in our home. She's fine when they are seated or not moving, but is nervous when someone gets up, moves, or the picture changes, like someone leaves and re-enters. In a typical Aussie fashion, she will bark and growl or go in for an inhibited bite. Now I know she is nervous, I can mostly manage or prevent, and am working on having her on lead and or settle on her bed around people and rewarding calm behaviors when someone gets up and moves, and I have hope that she will improve and that she can be easily redirected or called off. I'm working with the guidance of a trainer and the solid skills developed from my last dog. Her struggles around people had come as a surprise to the breeder, who she reported as one of her most stable dogs, uh, and has been disheartening to me. My last dog had a long list of challenges. We are working on meeting people outdoors and building her confidence, but as we have people over rarely, I'm wondering whether I need to set up more regular visits with people to practice having people in our space or whether I should focus on building confidence with people outdoors with more space first. Um, and from your experience with herding breeds who nip, do you think this is something that, that can be easily resolved? Um, and then just a tiny bit of extra info from Anna who writes, I can pop her in another room with a food toy, but she struggles to settle for longer periods. Plus the ultimate goal is for her to be able to be in the presence of our guests comfortably. So would really prefer to aim for having her out with us most of the time. So Anna, I'm glad that you're working with a trainer because this will require some ongoing work from you. Your core questions really are, you know, should you be focusing on the household thing or not and do I think this can be resolved so number one like you said you haven't had her very long and you don't have a lot of people over so no I would not zero in on 
having people over. I would zero in on skills. And the skills would be a downstay, comfort on leash, comfort stationing, probably comfort behind a gate or in an X pen in the space. I would work on those skills, among other things. And then I would work on her comfort with people out and about in the world, if that feels like something that's important to you. But again, I would really focus it on skills, loose leash walking, sits, downs, downstays, nose targeting, like give her a lot of, give her a wide skill set that she can draw from and that you can draw from in these circumstances. And I would also work on her hanging out alone. If she has a hard time settling for longer periods when she's by herself, that's something to work on as well. These dogs that are kind of disturbed by sudden changes in their environment and their space, which is really normal for these herding breeds and a lot of other dogs, they just need to be given the rules of the play. Like they just need to be told what it is that they should be doing and how how they are going to access reinforcement. What I find with herding breeds, which are pretty much the dogs that I choose to live with, is that they don't necessarily need to be the one in control, but they definitely need to see that it is under control. So telling them exactly what to do, feeding them, asking people to you know speak up before they get up, speak up before they do anything, being prepared for those odd moments that people do have sudden movements. And if you're having them over for something you know, kind of high energy, like watching a sports game or something, I would then do her the courtesy of putting her away for sure. So keep working on it. Of course, it can be resolved as most things can. She's not going to turn into the life of the party golden retriever, but she can be asked to do a downstay and not bite people as long as you ask people to leave her alone as well. So keep working on it, Anna. I think there's a lot of hope. I, I think it's going to be all right. Next one comes from Margaret who writes, lawnmower and whipper snipper which that's not something i knew but luckily margaret put edge trimmer um, in parentheses for me (laughs) issues is probably falls more into arousal and the dog not really being able to self-regulate when the lawnmower is going high-pitched barking wanting to chase even when the dog is contained within the house music or other covering noises happening the dog is still pacing panting and high-pitched barking There are moments when he lies down for several minutes, but then he pops up again. Living on a three-acre block means that sometimes lawn maintenance is happening over several hours. Any suggestions? So, Margaret, number one, I would, in order for you to progress and help this dog, he can't be exposed to this for three straight hours on occasion. So if you know you're going to have lawn maintenance and you really can't do anything to reduce his response, you're going to need to remove him from the house when that lawn maintenance is happening. If you can do something to reduce his response, like put him in a crate with a fan on it, with a you know blanket over it, in the room where he can hear it the least, with music going, like if you can reduce his response, do that. But this will not get better if he's continuing to kind of freak out about it periodically for a long amount of time. So um, having said that, this episode is the perfect one for you to listen to because you'll want to take a systematic desensitization approach paired with, I would pair that with skills training. So, you know, teach him to do something else while the lawnmower is happening. That can be as simple as you're going to do a puzzle toy while the lawnmower is happening. And I'm going to help you do that by giving you the puzzle toy and having the lawnmower 
go at just you know various levels or I might even just play a YouTube video of lawnmower sounds and see if that elicits a tiny bit of a response and get him used to eating a puzzle toy while that's happening but your biggest problem here so there's a lot of routes that you can go that's the route that I would go your biggest problem is that he's being exposed to it um, and having these big responses and if he keeps practicing having these big responses they're not going to go away all right, next one comes from Lisa who writes, I have four Aussies total that have previously lived in pretty good harmony. As my old girl ages, she will be 12 in March, there have been an increase in incidents with her and my reactive, somewhat unstable female six-year-old Aussie who can be a bit of a bully given the chance. Could you talk about living with older dogs and how to handle changing relationships in a pack? So I think the bigger problem actually is is not your older dog, but your young dog who is being allowed to behave in ways that you're gonna to wanna to manage a little bit better. As dogs get older, they get physically weaker and that is clear to the younger dogs and it's also clear to the older dogs. And so their behaviors certainly do change. My priority one is always just keeping the older dog safe and happy. That's priority one for me and that should be priority one for you, especially because your instigator is this younger female. You do say unstable and reactive, so I would also be thinking, you know, what other behavioral interventions could I be having for this six-year-old dog? Perhaps she needs some medication, perhaps her ch the training that you're doing needs to be adjusted. But I would be thinking about management. I would be thinking, you know, you've had uh, a nice long amount of time of peace with four dogs and it's changing a little bit, so I would implement some management as well. And do be sure, I have a, an online self-study course called Household Harmony, that's in the CogDog classroom, and that has kind of all of my hacks and training exercises for living in peace with multiple dogs, and that would be a help to you as well, Lisa. The next one comes from Paula. Paula writes, we have restricted choices for food due to allergies only protein is lamb. We have low value kibble, medium value homemade liver cake, mm, delicious liver cake, and high value is cooked lamb heart. This is a bit of a mixed question considering recall. I want, considering recall, I want to keep the meaty high value stuff, but also when learning new things, the dog isn't as motivated to work for low and something not medium. She'll take the food, but isn't super excited by it. Generally, she's been a hard dog to engage more often than not. Really my question is how to balance the high value so it can still hold value for recall and how quickly to move down the scale when she's learning something. So Paula, you aren't gonna move down the scale. You always need to use something that's worth the dog's time and worth the dog's work and effort. If the dog doesn't really care for the kibble, the kibble's probably not training food. Try to think outside the box a little bit as far as more medium, what you're calling medium uh, value treats. So if you can make this liver cake, then that means that there are other ingredients the dog can have and perhaps you can involve other flavors that are not protein related. Garlic powder, for instance, you don't wanna do a lot of it, but a little bit goes a long way. You could do the exact same recipe almost, but with some garlic in it, things like that. So think a little bit outside the box as far as your treats and know that if the dog doesn't like it enough to work for it, it's, you can't use it to train them. So while I like to use a variety, you may not have a variety available to you. And keeping the value of the high value stuff like the lamb heart has more to do with your kind of strategic delivery of those things. And I would definitely check out the food episode with Ash Osborne than it does 
have to do with deprivation. So if the dog hasn't eaten lamb heart in seven days, the dog will probably be more excited about lamb heart on the recall. That is true. But if you need to use lamb heart to get other things done in training that are important to you, that is also okay. So Polly, I hope that answers your question. Next one comes from Allie who writes, in one of your recent videos, you spoke about off-leash exercise not being beneficial to dogs if they are obsessively hunting. I have a three-year-old boxer Ridgeback retired street dog mix who is very stimulated by wildlife. I have been working really hard on her recall, which is really strong against everything else. And I use a long line when we're hiking and larger wildlife is a possibility. Our regular spot is a local forest that has a lot of squirrels and rodents. She does a lot of tracking in there and at times will chase, which I usually interrupt. My question is, when do I know that she is in a red zone with tracking slash obsessively hunting? So Allie, you probably won't know based on her behavior in front of you. You know based on the behavior after. So if the dog isn't decompressing, the dog's not gonna get those decompression benefits. They're not gonna sleep well, have more balanced behavior, things like that. If they are sleeping well and they have balanced behavior, the dog is decompressing and is doing fine with the hunting. So this is a, if it's not broken, don't fix it situation. If the dog doesn't seem to be decompressing, then that is where it is broken. And I might think about more structured forms of enrichment like nose work and also actual tracking not, I mean, not that this isn't tracking, but structured, trained tracking, things like that. And last one from this week, uh, for this week, comes from Monica, who writes, my 14-week-old Norwegian Buhund puppy really hates harnesses. We've tried several, and I've selected a couple for him that are well-padded, but lightweight and breathable. Even after a full week, 24-7, of wearing the one he seems to dislike least, he still spends a lot of time scratching at it and rubbing it on things. He does not have allergies or fleas. For future life reasons, I need him to be able to wear a harness as well as other clothes. Should I continue to keep him in a harness full time or try something else? So if he's just kind of rubbing at it periodically and not panicking about it or constantly rubbing at it, I would leave it on. If it's affecting his quality of life in the sense that he can't exercise wearing it or he can't eat wearing it, then you are gonna need to think outside the box a little bit more. But for me, if the puppy is eating and the puppy will go on a walk, like puppies running around in the wild, you know, frolicking through woods and might stop, scratch his harness a little bit and keep going, I am not bothered by that. Puppy cannot move because he's frozen because he's wearing a harness, which is the worst thing ever. I'm bothered by that. So this is about intensity. This is about how bothered are you by this? And it may, you know, some of these guys are so averse to wearing stuff that it does take them quite a long time to habituate <laughs> to the thing but it doesn't sound like like it doesn't sound that bad it sounds like he spends a lot of time scratching it and rubbing it on things well is it constant is it not and is it having effects on other things is the puppy still able to eat and play and learn stuff because if they are then i'm probably okay with it and if not then you are probably gonna have to go a different route. You could put could put a t-shirt on him and put the harness over the t-shirt and see if that helps him at all. If you can get a thunder shirt that's small enough for him and put that on under the harness, sometimes that is helpful. But in general, if the puppy's quality of life is not terribly affected, I would keep it on him until he habituates to it. Thank you everybody for your questions. That's it for this week. 
Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.